All right, the title of the message today is The King Who Will No More Be Admonished. And the scripture for today's message is in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 13 to 14. Better is a poor and a wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. For out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. I'll say a prayer. Dear God, uh, we thank you for your word, Lord, and we thank you that we have the privilege to come here and listen to it, Lord God. Just please keep us from error, Lord, and uh, help us see the clear teaching in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this message is somewhat related to the message we had a few weeks ago on the destruction of Saul. Um, we're going to talk about Saul a little bit here. Uh, you may recall that Saul did not respond properly when confronted with his sin. He made excuses and blamed others. So we're going to take a look at biblical admonition and some examples from the Bible. The goal is to help us better respond when faced with loving correction and also encourage us to be willing to warn our brothers and sisters. Okay, so if we look at Ecclesiastes 4, the passage, it contrasts a poor child and an old king. So these two categories are at the complete opposite ends of the spectrum, right? You have a child that is poor and generally looked down upon. And, you know, there's some wise children, but it's assumed that this child will not be able to contribute much, both due to age and lack of wealth. On the other hand, you have a king who's typically the most powerful man in the country, and also they're typically very wealthy. Additionally, he's old, which means he is experienced and should be very capable. Okay. The Bible makes a very important distinction here, though. The child is wise, and the king is foolish. And this is why the child's considered better in this case. The next verse goes on to say, looking at verse 14 here, that the child in this picture cometh to reign, while the king becometh poor. This can be seen as a picture of our millennial reign. As we get old and hardened, if we're acting foolishly, we can lose the kingdom. Whereas a wise child, a new Christian, gets saved out of prison and comes to reign in the millennial kingdom. This is a warning for all of us about our walk with the Lord and how important it is to maintain the wisdom that God has given us. The other important aspect of these verses is that the king will no more be admonished. And this is what we're going to focus on in this message. We're going to review a number of examples of actual kings in the Bible, but keep in mind that we as mature Christians can apply these lessons to our lives. Okay, so first let's define admonish. I think we kind of know what it means, but uh, Webster has a few definitions. First definition is to warn or notify of a fault, to reprove with mildness. Second, to counsel against wrong practices, to caution or advise. Third, to instruct or direct. And fourth, to reprove a member of the church for a fault, either publicly or privately, the first step of church discipline. So you can see it's warning and um, not harsh, but uh, cautioning, advising. When applied to our example of a foolish king, there can be multiple responses to admonishment that we're going to look at. The first is he's around others that ad attempt to admonish him, but he rejects them. The second one is he surrounds himself with those that enable and flatter him 
and don't admonish him at all. And the, the third situation is he'll go to great lengths to justify his actions in the face of admonition, including lying and searching for anyone that will agree with him. In all of these cases, the king will no longer accept admonishment. As we'll see, this is a dangerous position to be in. We'll look at some examples and hopefully learn the importance of godly admonition and how to respond to it. So the goal here, just keep this in mind, is to avoid any of us being like that old and foolish king. We can, all, we can be there, we can get there, so we're going to try to avoid that. And hopefully it will also help us in dealing with others that might be in this sad state or if you see someone going down that path. Okay, so first we'll look at some examples of the incorrect response to correction. So we're going to break up the examples into the three categories we just outlined. Uh, the first is the king's in contact with others that attempt to admonish him, but he rejects them. He'll sometimes even blame those that try to correct him. So the first example is King Ahab. And we're going to visit King Ahab a couple times here. Uh, the, the Bible says he was extremely wicked, more than any of the other kings of Israel before him. The Bible says in 1 Kings 16, verses 30 to 33, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, above all that were before him. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal, in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. So as a result of Ahab's sin, God brought severe drought upon Israel. Elijah was the one that revealed God's judgment to Ahab. The Bible says in the next chapter, 1 Kings 17, verse 1, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Later on, Ahab meets Elijah. And how did he respond here? The Bible says in the next chapter, 1 Kings 18, verses 17 to 18, And it came to pass, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. So you see here, Ahab blamed Elijah for the drought that God had brought upon Israel, even though Ahab was one of the major causes of the punishment. Those who cause God's judgments are the problem, not those that warn others to repent. So he he put that back on Elijah. As we can see, not listening to godly correction is one way to become hardened and can lead to destruction. A second situation is when the king surrounds himself with those that enable him and don't attempt to admonish him at all. The Bible refers to enablers as flatterers. and You guys are probably familiar with the term. Webster defines flattery as to praise falsely to encourage by favorable notice as to flatter vices or crimes. 
While the flatterer's words may seem encouraging on the surface, they're actually very dangerous. Flattering words tell a person what they want to hear instead of the truth. The Bible talks about flattery a lot, and we'll look at a couple of verses. Proverbs 26, 28 says, A lying tongue hateth those that are afflicted by it, and a flattering mouth worketh ruin. So here the flattering mouth may seem encouraging, but the words are very dangerous. The lying tongue referenced is more obvious, right? We all know lying is bad, and we don't want to be lied to, but flattery is just as wicked. And we can use the example of the way Satan approached Eve in the Garden of Eden, using those smooth words to, to trick her and tempt her. Proverbs 28.23 says, He that rebuketh a man afterwards shall find more favor than he that flattereth with the tongue. For a lot of us, I know, know for me, definitely, warning or rebuking is difficult at times. The words can seem cutting or critical. Uh, but we can look back and see that being corrected is far more valuable than flowery, flattering words that are, are vain. Anything that keeps us in our sin, no matter how it's delivered, is, is wicked. Okay. Now let's look back at Ahab again for an example of how dangerous flattering words are. So you may recall Ahab and Jehoshaphat were discussing going to battle together. And that, that, that's another topic, right? Jehoshaphat being involved with Ahab is not a good thing. But the Bible says in 1 Kings 22, verses 4 to 8, And he said unto Jehoshaphat, this is Ahab, Wilt thou go with me to battle to Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said unto them, Shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides, that we might inquire of him? And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man, Micaiah the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. So Ahab was at the point where he didn't want to hear anything that he thought might be against him. He had surrounded himself with prophets that would only tell him what he wanted to hear and not the truth. And notice how Ahab had 400 false prophets all telling the same lies and just one actual prophet speaking the truth. And, you know, kind of reminds me of the Internet, right? You, you go on the Internet, it's easy to find tons of people who agree with you when you're in error. Uh, you can also block out those that disagree with you. You have a couple of people speaking the truth, you can block them out. So we need to be careful not to cut off those that love us, such as our parents and God-fearing brothers and sisters in Christ. They might tell you what you need to hear, even if it's difficult to receive. Okay, we'll look at another example of avoiding the truth, and this is in uh, Jeremiah. So in Jeremiah 38, uh, Jeremiah was telling God's truth about how to deal with the Chaldeans, and the princes didn't want to hear it. Jeremiah correctly warned them that the city would be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. 
And here's the response of the princes in Jeremiah 38, verses 4 and 6. Therefore the princes said unto the king, We beseech thee, let this man be put to death, for thus he weakeneth the hands of the men of war that remain in this city, and the hands of all the people, in speaking such words unto them. For this man seeketh not the welfare of this people, but the hurt. Then Zedekiah the king said, Behold, he is in your hand, for the king is not he that can do anything against you. Then they took they Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Melchiah the son of Hemelech, that was in the court of the prison, and they let down Jeremiah with cords. And in the dungeon there was no water but mire, so Jeremiah sunk in the mire. So they actually wanted to kill Jeremiah for speaking the truth, and they ultimately put him in the dungeon. And you see a pattern in the Bible and, and in, in life that wicked people have a hard time with the truth and often seek to harm or slander those that present it to them, even when it's done in love. So they immediately get defensive. All right, another example that we're probably all familiar with of ignoring godly counsel is the story of Rehoboam when he ignored the counsel of the old wise men and instead listened to the advice of the young men he grew up with. So you may recall when Rehoboam took power, the people asked him to ease their work burden, which was quite heavy from the days of Solomon, since Solomon undertook many building projects. So Rehoboam first asked the old men that had served with his father. Remember, Solomon was so wise, and they gleaned from his wisdom. 1 Kings 12, verses 6 to 7. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived, and said, How do you advise that I may answer this people? And they spake unto him, saying, If thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day, and wilt serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they will be their servants forever. Reasonable advice, right? The wise old men advised him to speak good words to the people to ensure allegiance moving forward. Rehoboam then asked the young men, and they gave him conflicting advice. In verse 10, it says, The young men that were grown up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou speak unto this people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make thou it lighter unto us. Thus shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. And now, whereas my father did laid you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father has chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. So you can see this was just an overly harsh answer. Um, not a soft answer, not a good answer. Not only did he not agree to remove some of the burden, he said, I'm going I'm to give you more, right? Not, not the, the, the best thing to do right when you got put in power. Um, so by ignoring the wise counsel and listening to vain words, Rehoboam ended up losing control of the full kingdom. Okay, the last example we're going to look at in terms of the incorrect response to correction is the king that will go to great lengths to justify his actions, including lying and finding anyone that will agree with him. So we'll go back to Jeremiah 38 in verse 19. King Zedekiah was in this state when he met with Jeremiah. He heard the words that Jeremiah spoke, but he didn't heed his advice and wanted to keep it a secret. It was his pride that prevented him from following the word of God. Notice what it says in verse 19. 
And Zedekiah the king said unto Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews that are fallen to the Chaldeans, lest they deliver me into their hand, and they mock me. So Zedekiah had already made certain decisions, and he was afraid he would be mocked if he changed his mind and admitted he was wrong. Zedekiah also wanted to keep the meeting with Jeremiah secret to keep his reputation intact. The spirit of fear and self-preservation can really take a toll on one's life. Uh, Matthew Henry had a good commentary on this verse. He said, Though it had been really the greatest personal mischief that he could imagine it to be, yet he ought to have ventured it in obedience to God and for the preservation of his family and city. He thought it would be looked upon as a piece of cowardice to surrender, whereas it would be really an instance of true courage, cheerfully to bear less evil, the mocking of the Jews, for the avoiding of a greater, the ruin of his family and kingdom. So sometimes the fear of admitting we were wrong and repenting can prevent us from being delivered, and that ultimately results in bigger problems. Okay, let's now look back at Saul again for another example of the foolish king. And as we talked about last time, Saul seems to have gone through all the phases of rebellion. So he started off, first he was close to Samuel, the spiritual leader of Israel, but he didn't listen to him. And so Saul disobeyed the instructions of God through Samuel. And as we know, he offered that burnt offering instead of waiting for Samuel to arrive as commanded. In 1 Samuel 13, verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. So even when given the clear commandment of God through Samuel, Saul decided to forsake it and do what he thought was best. Okay, later on, we know Saul surrounded himself with yes-men, flatterers like Doeg the Edomite. And while Saul was pursuing David, he addressed his men and asked for information regarding David. He also seemed to be getting a bit paranoid and, and worried, and he wasn't thinking correctly. So if you turn to 1 Samuel 22, verse 7 through 9, Saul said unto his servants that stood about him, Hear now, ye Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? And there is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you that is sorry for me, or showeth unto me that my son hath stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at that day. So we can see here that Saul's completely off base. He's not thinking correctly and acting paranoid. So David's on the run from Saul. It's not the other way around. Saul's the one pursuing him. David is not lying in wait to take over the kingdom. And we know far from that, David's refusing to lift up his hand against Saul at all. But Saul, as we saw there, said that he's lying in wait for him. Saul at this point has rejected God and as a result lost all his wisdom. Doeg here, after hearing Saul say that, has a great opportunity to correct Saul and perhaps defuse the situation. But instead of admonishing him, he goes along with the delusion and tells Saul where David was and what he did. And as we know, this ended up with, with all the men of God being killed by Doeg. Okay, lastly, 
near the end, Saul ends up visiting the witch of Endor in an attempt to call up Samuel for advice. So this is after Samuel dies, Saul is no longer hearing from the Lord and wants advice on what to do. Instead of repenting and seeking God correctly, he decides to visit a witch. And we know from the Bible that Saul at some point knew this was wrong because he cut off all the witches and wizards out of the land. It says that in 1 Samuel 28, verses 9 to 12. And the woman said unto him, Behold, thou knowest what Saul hath done, how he hath cut off those that have familiar spirits, and the wizards out of the land. Wherefore then layest thou a snare for my life, to cause me to die? And Saul sware to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord liveth, there shall no punishment happen to thee for this thing. Then said the woman, Whom shall I bring up unto thee? And he said, Bring me up, Samuel. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. And the woman spake to Saul, saying, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. And this is a good picture of the downward spiral that Christians can face. While Samuel was alive and telling him the very words of God, Saul didn't listen. But in the later stages of his life, he went to a witch to try to talk to Samuel after he was already dead. And this shows how far we can fall if we refuse to be corrected and won't repent. And I think at this point in Saul's life, he had rejected God's word for so long and his heart had become so hardened that he no longer had a sound mind. He does seem to realize he's far from God and has some fear of the situation he's in or else he wouldn't have visited the witch and tried to call up Samuel for advice. I believe the fear of judgment may have led to his lack of wisdom in visiting the witch. The Bible talks about this fear in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So notice the contrast here. On the one hand, you have fear. On the other is power, love, and a sound mind. That sound mind means you're thinking soberly, thinking clearly. The opposite of this is delusional thinking and erratic behavior. The Bible has another example of this in Proverbs 28.1. says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And no one's pursuing you and you're fleeing. When someone's in sin, they tend to be afraid of God's judgment if their conscience is working properly. They tend to no longer think clearly, and they'll be afraid of everything. And as we know, what happens to those that refuse to repent? Proverbs 29.1 says, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed in that without remedy. Okay, so all that was pretty, pretty grim and um, scary, and I think it's a good warning for us. But now the good news is that God tells us a lot about the correct response to admonishment and the benefits of it. And this is very important for us. We should gladly receive admonishment, even if it doesn't feel good at first. And sometimes it may take a while for it to sink in, but we shouldn't be stubborn. Instead, we should humble ourselves and listen to those that love us. The first example of this correct response is Naaman. Second Kings 5 talks about Naaman. He was the captain of the hosts of Syria and was a leper. And you may recall he visited Elisha, hoping to be healed. 
Elisha told him to wash in Jordan seven times and he would be healed. Naaman did not respond well to this. So we'll pick it up at verse 11, 2 Kings 5. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. So he is very angry. His servants then admonished him. Verse 13. And the servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? Look at, look at Naaman's response. Then he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. I like that, that it was the flesh of a little child. Not only was he healed, God took him back, gave him some years back. Naaman humbled himself and listened to the very reasonable suggestions of his servants. And in, in, in this case, he was a powerful man, but he was willing to be admonished by those with a lower position than him. He didn't stain his anger, and he was healed as a result. This healing and the resulting joy are often right there for us if we just listen to godly correction. And better yet, obviously, if we can just simply follow the word of God, we might not need to be corrected as often. Praise God. Another example of the correct response to admonishment is when David numbered Israel. And we did talk about this briefly in the message about Saul. The Bible says in 1 Chronicles 21, verses 1 to 4, And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. And David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, and bring the number of them to me, that I may know it. And Joab answered, The Lord make his people a hundred times more, many more as they be. But, my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why then doth my lord require this thing? Why will he, cause, why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Wherefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. So we notice here that the Bible says Satan provoked David to number Israel, likely out of pride. Joab actually saw the issue and admonished David. In this case, David could not be convinced and went forward with the sinful behavior. And later on, sure enough, we see that all Israel was punished. Now, David didn't respond to the initial admonishment, but did repent when confronted with the results of his sin. Look at later in 1 Chronicles 21. We'll see his response in verses 7 and 8. And God was displeased with this thing. Therefore, he smote Israel. And David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I beseech thee, do away with the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. Rejection of admonition will lead to chasing from God. At this point, we still have time to repent and make things right with God. And we see further that David was truly sorry. The Bible says in 1 Chronicles 21, verses 16 to 17, And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and the heaven, 
having a drawn sword in his hand, stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed. That as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me and on my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. And as we know, ultimately David learned his lesson and endured the chastening. First Chronicles 21:27, And the Lord commanded the angel, and he put up his sword again into the sheath thereof. You know, praise God when the chastening is over, right? Okay, let's look at another example of David's life. And David, the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart, um, but the Bible does cover a lot of his sin, which I guess is good for us, right? Um, in that, you know, we know God's there for us and, and we can always repent. And uh, we'll talk about a familiar story for everyone, I'm sure, David and Uriah and the progression of David's sin. And there's a good lesson here. So first, David lusts after Bathsheba. The Bible says in 2 Samuel 11:2, And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. As we know, he then goes on to commit adultery, and when he fears he'll be caught, he has Uriah killed in an attempt to cover it up. Remember, Uriah was one of David's mighty men, named specifically in the Bible. So to cover his sin, David had a valiant man killed. Very wicked. 2 Samuel 12, 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. I want to point out that it says here, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. Aren't we glad the Lord sends messengers to admonish us when we're in sin like this? It really shows how much God loves us. He's not willing that any should perish, both in the lake of fire and at the judgment seat. Nathan goes on to tell David the story of the lamb that was killed by the rich man and then confronts David. So we'll pick it up in verse 7. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and has slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. So how did David respond to this? Did he double down and stay in his sin? Did he blame someone else? No, he responded correctly. Second Samuel 12, verse 13 and 14 says, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. 
So David had to pay the price, but the Lord did put away his sin. And in reading this verse, in, in some ways it seems so easy to repent and be forgiven, doesn't it? Uh, the hard part is humbling ourselves to get to that point of repentance. The lesson is that no matter how far we've gone down a sinful path, God is waiting for us to come back. Remember how the father in the parable of the prodigal son runs to meet the prodigal when he is still a great way off. So we just have to start that journey back, and that does take uh, humbling ourselves. Okay, so what can we do to avoid becoming like the foolish king? I, I, I think we all agree we don't want anyone here to, to, to be like this. So what we could do is we could surround ourselves with good counselors and humbly listen to them. The Bible says a lot about this. In Proverbs eleven fourteen, where no counsel is, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. Proverbs fifteen twenty two, without counsel, purposes are disappointed, but in the multitude of counselors they are established. And also in Proverbs nineteen twenty, hear counsel, and receive instruction, that thou mayest be wise in thy latter end. I was blessed when I read this one because it specifically mentions the latter end. You remember in our uh, verses in Ecclesiastes, it talks about an old king in his latter end. The scripture shows us exactly how to not end up old and foolish. It says to hear counsel and receive instruction. Okay, on the other side of this, what is our responsibility as Christians towards our brothers and sisters? and any old and foolish kings in our lives. We're encouraged to admonish each other. Proverbs 27.6 Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. The truth given in love is far more beneficial to the hearer. Sometimes it's hard to bring up certain topics, but the people who hear will thank you later, oftentimes. On the other side of the coin are just these smooth, empty words of the enemy which may encourage you in your sin. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 4.14, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons I warn you. Gentle warning or correction is not meant to shame or make someone feel bad in a wicked way. It is loving to actually warn. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Now we exhort you, brethren, Warn them that are unruly. Comfort the feeble-minded. Support the weak. Be patient toward all men. We notice how warning is actually grouped together with comforting, supporting, and patience. And we don't always think of warning as being similar to the other nurturing-type qualities. But it's our duty to warn, just as we're required to be patient. Okay, back in the Old Testament, Second Chronicles 19.10. And what cause soever shall come to you of your brethren that dwell in their cities between blood and blood, between law and commandment, statutes and judgments. Ye shall even warn them that they trespass not against the Lord, and so wrath come upon you and upon your brethren. This do, and ye shall not trespass. So from this scripture we see that we actually benefit as a church from warning our friends. Wrath can actually come upon others around you when you're in sin. Uh, we also see that admonishing requires persistence. The Bible says in Acts 20, verses 29 to 31, For this I know, that after my departing, 
shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. So don't give up on any loved ones that we have that don't seem to be listening. Continue in tears, loving them. Hasn't God been so patient with us? Uh, we can be the same to others. All right, and it can be hard to warn and accept the warnings of others. I know I struggle with that. It can be viewed as mean or judgmental. If someone comes to correct you, you immediately get defensive. You start prickling up a little bit. And we do want to approach it in a loving way. But how often do we just avoid it altogether because it's uncomfortable? And, of course, the Bible itself is full of warnings for us. The Bible says to do good and you'll be blessed. Do bad and you'll see the consequences. God lays it out so simply for us, but we tend to cause ourselves problems with our own pride and stubbornness. This is one of the reasons I believe Jesus said in Matthew 18:3, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And with a child, it's, it's pretty simple, right? You, you say things like, don't touch that, don't do that, you're going to get a spanking. Or do this, chore, and you'll get a reward. And they seem to understand it and respond to it. If only we could do the same and just take the Word of God at face value and obey it. Uh, in, in summary, we should always be open to warning from our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we get to the point where we don't want to hear it, or even worse, remove good counselors far from us, it makes it more and more difficult to turn back to the Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word, Lord, and all the warnings that you lovingly give us, Lord God, and your, your patience that you have with us, Lord. And we pray that we would just be patient with our dear brothers and sisters, Lord, our family members, and, and anyone else, Lord God. And we know how hard it is to take correction at times, Lord, so we just pray that you'd soften up anyone that's hearing correction, Lord, and, and desperately needs it, Lord. Let us always be loving in, in the way we approach people, about things we need to approach them about, Lord. Let us not hesitate to lovingly admonish one another, Lord. And uh, we just thank you again for your word that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.